Hello. You are listening to Practicing Gospel. I'm David Rayburn. This episode is just me. I would like to give you some background about this show. As my tagline says, this show is Christian talk with a progressive twist. I thought you might be curious about what I mean by that description, what to expect from the show, some of the experiences and the ideas that have shaped me and influenced my perspective and motives, and why I am doing this show. First, let me tell you a little bit about myself. My best early skills were in music. Being in band was the central experience of my junior high and high school years. So when I went to college, I majored in instrumental music education with the vision of being a public school band director. However, in my walk with God, I felt called into ministry. That calling led me to the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky, where I earned a master's in church music. For three years after that, I served as Minister of Music and Youth at First Baptist Church in Rogersville, Tennessee. My time in seminary planted a seed of desire for greater theological training and study. That seed began to sprout and grow during my time in Rogersville. So I returned to Louisville and earned a Master's of Divinity and then a Doctor of Philosophy in Theology. I combined my love of music, the arts, and theology in my doctoral dissertation, comparing a theologian with the philosopher of art. After graduating, I became assistant professor and later associate professor in the religion department of Palm Beach Atlantic College in West Palm Beach, Florida. Again, combining my two academic loves of the arts and theology, I began an institute for Christianity and the arts at the college. I taught for 11 years, but my guess is that because of the pressure from local fundamentalist and conservative pastors, the administrators thought me too liberal for the college's purposes and dismissed me by not renewing my contract. Then I moved to North Carolina, where I became pastor of First Baptist Church in Black Mountain, and I served that congregation for nearly 13 years. I started formulating this show back in the 1990s as I started hearing more and more fundamentalist and conservative Christian views in the media with virtually no alternative viewpoints. This was deeply troubling for me as these views were misrepresenting the beliefs and practices of a large body of Christians, including myself, and disregarding the history of many branches of Christianity. Baptists, for example have played a major role throughout their history in promoting issues such as the separation of church and state and an individual's right to choose what they believe and how they worship. I, and many other Baptists I know, still hold these founding principles as central to what we believe and how we relate to others. However, if one were to listen to individuals such as Jerry Falwell, who, as a Baptist, was often perceived to represent Baptists in the media, one would think that we all spurn such principles, advocating instead for a Christian-run government with a president as a minister of God, Christian schools rather than public ones, 
and countless restrictions on the personal and religious freedoms of anyone who was not Christian, or white, or straight, or American for that matter. What, I kept asking myself, was going on? Where was the progressive or even moderate Christian voice? Due to life's various twists and turns, I had to keep this question and the desire to create this show on the back burner. However, I knew that it was a good time to do this show when I read an article by Danielle Kurtzleben that appeared on National Public Radio on October 6, 2016. In the article, Kurtzleben responds to a reader who asked the very question that I was asking myself. Why don't we hear more about the Christian left? It seems that this question has become more pressing now than ever before. Kurtzleben's answer is based upon statistics from the Pew Research Center, which found that Christians make up 83% of the Republican Party, or those leaning toward Republicans, while they make up only 49% of the Democratic Party or those leaning Democrat. Nearly one-third of the Democratic Party are religiously unaffiliated. They make up a growing group called the Nuns, spelled N-O-N-E-S, not the Catholic female monastic N-U-N-S. In addition, the research points out that there is significant diversity among Christians on the political and theological left. The result is, is that they don't form as cohesive a political influence as do Christians on the political right. As Kurt Slaven says, there is a difference between having lots of numbers and being a cohesive political force. For these reasons, radio and television doesn't cover the Christian left as frequently. While I believe the pews and Kurt Slaven's research and conclusions are accurate, I want to add on to the explanation of why we don't hear as much from the Christian left. I think there are three interrelated issues. The first is that traditional denominational Christianity in the United States has experienced significant decline. This decline is happening across the theological and political spectrum. Even many conservative evangelistic churches are struggling with the decline's impact. There are fewer people going to church. Those who come are older. Budgets have fallen and hundreds of churches close each year. Because the Christian left is less evangelistic, the decline has hit them more. The result is, is when budgets are cut, media is one of the first things that goes, because radio and TV are pricey. So, by necessity, the Christian left has given up its voice in radio and television. Second, being bigger and more wealthy, the Christian right, those who are fundamentalist and conservative Christians, own most of the Christian radio and television stations. Because they consider the Christian left to be liberal and thus heretical or even non-Christian, the Christian right intentionally excludes the voices of the Christian left, their opinions, their music, everything. Third, secular media when it turns to a Christian voice, tends to turn to the Christian right in part for the reasons Kurt Laban gives about the Christian right being a more cohesive political force, but also, often, as a contrasting voice. 
The result is, is that secular media tends to exclude the Christian left by neglect and by the desire to appear fair and unbiased. The cumulative effect is that the voices of the Christian left are largely missing in public media. The purpose of this show, however modest, is an attempt to fill some of the void and to let you, my hopeful audience, know, at least in part, what those on the Christian left think. Because even though the voices on the Christian left are smaller and very diverse, nevertheless, they are important voices that should be heard. In many of my episodes, I will be featuring guests from the Christian left to discuss current events from the progressive Christian perspective. So let me say a word or two about what I mean by the Christian left and progressive. For my purposes, I'm going to use very broad boundaries for who I consider to be on the Christian left. I will include anyone who considers herself or himself not a part of the Christian right. But also, I will include anyone whom the Christian right disavows. These two criteria mean that I include some whom others would be surprised by, and also some who may find themselves to be surprised to be included. Why, you may be asking yourself, should I want to hear the voices of the Christian left? (laughs) Well, (laughs) you may not, but since apparently curiosity has led you to tune in, let me list a few reasons. The first reason is to hear a corrective about several misperceptions that have developed about Christians as a whole based on the one-sided messaging being put forth by the Christian right. The most important thing I want to make clear is that to the majority of us on the Christian left, the Bible and Christianity are more about acceptance and love than division and hatred. I read a BuzzFeed News article a while back by Catherine Myers called Coming Out as Christian Among America's Godless Coastal Elite. In the article, she notes that for many other than Christian folks, being culturally Christian implies social conservatism and discrimination, anti-gay, pro-life, and pro-gun political agendas. It connotes a lack of education to the point of delusion. While not all of on the Christian right follow in complete conformity to that laundry list, and there are some gifted scholars as well as generous and compassionate people on the Christian right who are trying to make the world better, you will not, or will not often, hear from the Christian right the full perspectives of Christian, new, of Christian views. Those of us who are on the Christian left believe that it is important and even vital that another and fuller picture be provided on who Christians are and what we are doing. I am a white, male, heterosexual, southern-born and raised, formerly Southern Baptist preacher. But despite all that those labels might suggest, I do not conform to that conservative laundry list. Even the show's title, Practicing Gospel, may lead people to the false assumption that this is a conservative show simply because it is Christian. But I gave it that name for two reasons. To honor Vanderbilt Divinity School professor Edward Farley, 
who has influenced me greatly and who wrote a book with the same title, but also because many of us on the Christian left believe that in the gospel, Jesus taught us to spread love to all people from all places and all walks of life and to have conversations that build understanding, not division. So I hope that with this show, I will be practicing gospel in the way I believe it was originally intended. Another misperception I hope to quell is that you have to be a fundamentalist or a conservative to be a passionate believer and follower of Jesus Christ. According to this misperception, often perpetuated by the more radical on the Christian right, all on the Christian left affirm the death of God and deny the historical realities and miracles spoken of in the Judeo-Christian scripture, like the creation account in the book of Genesis, the Jonah story, the virgin birth, the resurrection, etc., and also seek the tearing down of traditional values by affirming abortion, legalization of drugs, open sexuality, and homosexual relationships. They would have you believe that there was some kind of unified agenda on the Christian left, that, similar to the Christian right, the Christian left marches in lockstep. But our diversity helps dispel this misperception. While many on the Christian left do affirm the beliefs I mention, many do not, and many others affirm some, but not all of them. Progressive beliefs do not have to be anti-Christian or anti-Jesus. In fact, theologian Catherine Tanner makes the case that many traditional Christian doctrines can actually serve progressive political agendas. Liberation theology that advocates social concern for the poor and political liberation of the oppressed is one of the most important developments in theology ever in my mind, but at least in the past century. I once heard a speech by Gustavo Gutierrez, one of the primary originators of the movement. When this immensely influential theologian and priest began to speak, he said, I do not believe in liberation theology. I believe in Jesus Christ. As progressive Christians, it is our belief in Jesus Christ and his message of love, kindness, and inclusion that drives our social and political views. As I hope you will see, most of my guests, as well as my own experiences, will demonstrate this belief. A third misperception I hope you will find this show dispels is that in order to be a Christian, one has to be ignorant of or to deny the best of scientific and philosophical research and all of its variations. Some Christians do walk a different path that, at times, does stand in contrast and even opposition to accepted secular research. But most of the time, research and Christianity can walk hand in hand. And, as it has done throughout its history, Sometimes Christianity can serve as a corrective to present opinions and research. As one who has a Ph.D. and seeks to keep abreast of currents in research and scholarship, it is in part because of the scholarship of those on the Christian left that I hold my Christian faith with the convictions that I do. And I know of many of my friends and colleagues who would give the same testimony. This brings me back to the meaning of the words progressive and progress. 
What counts as progress is considered to be defined politically by the dominant culture. Some, like social theorist Michel Foucault, even seem to argue that there really is no such thing as progress. What appears to be progress is nothing more than a lateral shift between paradigms which both enlighten us to some things but blind us to others. In our context in the United States, European settlers' desire to create a land of the free came at the cost of oppressive colonialism and slavery of Native American and African peoples, as well as continuing notions of capitalism. In addition, progress and progressiveness are also often associated with utopianism. Historical efforts at creating utopias have been greatly misguided and resulted in some terrible and tragic events. With deference, however, to Foucault, I still want to hang on to the term. Despite the dual phenomenon of enlightenment and blindness, which makes the claim of lateral shifts seem to have merit, in my mind, humanity has increased and even progressed in its knowledge in an ever-evolving way. Yes, we as humans in all the forms of our aggregate, individual, corporate, collective, past and future, cumulatively, are limited. We don't and won't ever have, see all of, or understand the quote-unquote big picture. But we do have, when given the freedom and chance, curiosity, the desire to want to know and to understand. We are capable of learning, gaining and understanding, exploring and discovering, innovating. We also seem capable of evaluation, judgment, critique, correction, revision, and reformulation. There are all kinds of folks out there exploring the edges of what we know, pressing the boundaries of our knowledge, expanding our understanding of truth and of all of its varying perceptions. In my mind, that is a good and wonderful thing. Within Christianity, that open-ended, open-minded quest seems to be more prominent among the Christian left, in my observation, than among the Christian right. The value we give science itself lends us to our beliefs in progress. Even though we know we can't realize or actualize it ever in the here and now, we Christians can't escape the truth that our visions of the kingdom of God and of the coming eschaton are utopian. But like theologians Catherine Tanner, whom I mentioned earlier, as well as John Howard Joder, Stanley Hauerwas, and Jürgen Moltmann, all advocate that such concepts of the kingdom of God serve as important tools for calling into question existing political structures that oppress and abuse. Christians also acknowledge that we live in the tension that while the kingdom of God will never be fully realized here, the kingdom is in fact among us, and we can live toward the vision and goal of that kingdom. Our doctrine of sanctification holds that what God has done in Jesus is to enable us to improve in our abilities to step away from our sinfulness and to be more like Jesus. It acknowledges 
that God has given us the ability to grow in wisdom and maturity, not just individually, but collectively. Progress can be made. There always needs to be someone out there exploring, discovering, innovating, helping us to see more of the big picture and have visions of improvement. Those are the folks I include under the title Progressive. At the root of this show is the quest for truth. I know defining truth is complicated, and the question of whether or not there is even such a thing as truth is wrapped up in issues of power and politics, where, like progress, truth is defined by the conqueror and the dominant culture. Even acknowledging all this, truth seems to matter, especially in issues of justice. I've not found a worthy understanding of justice that doesn't somehow include the truth of what has happened, especially to the victims of injustice. Truth also matters in our current political situation where we have a president who is constantly making accusations of fake news and, along with his administration and campaign, claiming to have alternative facts. Judeo-Christian scripture testifies that truth seems to matter to God. After all, John's gospel records Jesus as saying that we will know the truth and it will set us free. Much of what I read and observe in the scholarship of the Christian left is a willingness to seek truth and to follow it where it leads, even if that means revising what we believe about God and being Christian. As I said before, as humans, we are limited and cannot see the big picture. But in addition, Christians also make the claim that we are all sinful. Evil exists in our world, as existence is one of the major reasons some folks question the existence of God, especially as Christians testify about God, and why many base their actions and beliefs on fear. Those concerns are important and will be addressed along the way in this show. But Christians hold that our sinfulness, our flawed dimension, distorts clouds, confuses, and even blinds our understanding. And that is another vital reason why the quest for truth matters. This brings me back to the issues of fake news and alternative facts. Now, please understand me. Even though what I'm about to say may not sound like it, I affirm next to nothing about our current president. There is, there is so much that he says and does that angers and disgusts and frightens and saddens me, and I am constantly mystified and baffled by the support he is given by the Christian right. But on the issues of fake news and alternative facts, those of us on the Christian left should take heed. It is because of our sinfulness that fake news, in fact, exists in all belief systems all over the world, and has for thousands of years. Propaganda, campaigns of misinformation, tabloid news, smear tactics are just a few examples that support the claim. The news industry has its own internal struggle and debates over the reality 
that good, responsible, investigative reporting struggles to compete with a 24-hour news-as-entertainment business model. Sensationalism is not only what sells, but is also called necessary as a driver for a 24-hour news network. I can testify that on the few occasions when I have been interviewed by the local newspaper or television station, on each occasion, while the reporter may have quoted me correctly, the reporter placed my quote in the context that changed the meaning of what I said, gave it a different meaning than the context in which the question was asked. News media should be held more accountable for the misuse of their powers, though how to make this happen is a complicated issue. Having the right to object to something I say is extremely important, but to misrepresent me, as so many testify happens so often to them by the news media, is why so many distrust news media. Trust in the main medium through which we have some knowledge of the truth and what actually is going on is of paramount importance. News organizations are partially culpable for the environment of mistrust we are experiencing. However, those making claims of fake news have the responsibility and the obligation to demonstrate, with verifiable information, how and why the news is in fact fake, and not just to make God groundless, demigod-like proclamations. There is a quote attributed to Daniel Patrick Moynihan that says, You are entitled to your own opinion, but not your own facts. That's a good insight. But here's the rub. Because we are all limited and can't see the whole picture, there are often others who have facts that we don't. The results of our present presidential election remind us of this. Most of the news media polls had Hillary Clinton leading so significantly that her election seemed certain. But the polls of the Republicans and the Trump campaign told them of a different story. And that story turned out to be more accurate. Sometimes, as galling as it may seem, the very ones who have information which creates a fuller picture of the truth are our opponents. No matter where one lies on the political spectrum, often what we think is true, what we are told is true, and even what we conclude is true based upon supporting evidence is not the same as the actual factual truth. Although people in power will often try to distort the truth for their own gains, sometimes truth is better preserved and spoken by the oppressed. One such example is the claims of paternity made by Thomas Jefferson's black descendants. Despite the full force of white power and scholarship that sought to disavow, disaccredit, and disprove such claims, despite the barriers to education, mechanisms of power, and scholarship imposed upon them, and despite having very little hope that it would ever be proved otherwise, in the quiet of their homes, those African-American descendants of Jefferson whispered in the ears of each generation that regardless of what white culture says, Thomas Jefferson is your father, was your grandfather, 
was your great-great-grandfather. What was presented to the public for decades as fact turned out not to be fact at all. It wasn't until DNA testing came along that the irrefutable truth came out. As Edward Farley argues in his exceptional book, The Fragility of Knowledge, Theological Education in the Church and University, the truth known by the oppressed and even the marginalized often serves as an important corrective to the dominant paradigm. Writer and activist Wendell Berry is seen by many as a prophetic voice. In an interview, he was asked how he felt about being perceived in that role. He responded, We all ought to be prophets in the sense that we should see the truth and tell it. This statement expresses one of the reasons why I think the quest for truth matters. We all have our truths to tell. No matter where we come from or what we believe, we all have our own unique experience to share that can add to our understanding of the big picture. What we need to do is talk with each other and build connections based upon all of the wonderful things that we have in common that get twisted into sources of contention. Love of family and friends, pride of heritage, and the desire for life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. All of what I've been saying leads me to a posture of caution and humility. Although I have a Ph.D. in theology and consider myself a progressive Christian, and I've done a great deal of study on different belief systems around the world, I recognize the fact that having been dealt a whole hand of privileged cards, white, straight, Christian, male, my life experience and that of others in our country will often be very different. In addition, while this is not a Baptist show, nevertheless, I can't help live and speak out of the heritage that shaped me. Although it may not seem like it from what you see or read in the news, the type of Baptists who have shaped me have as a core value humility, a value I seek to live by each day. Taking deeply seriously the truths that we are all both limited and sinful, my kind of Baptist never creedalized our beliefs. We hold our convictions strongly because we believe in the quality of our reasoning and scholarship. But we hold the door open, as the Apostle Paul puts it, to correction, to reproof, and to training in righteousness. Because we know that we are all limited in understanding and our sinfulness distorts and blinds us to underlying truths that sometimes are paradigm changers. If I understand him correctly, philosopher Thomas Kuhn makes the case that the very nature of a paradigm is something that not only opens but equally blinds one to other possibilities. That is why, he claims, paradigm shifts are often revolutionary. One could even say radical. Mikhail Foucault seems to make a similar argument in his book, The Order of Things, an Archaeology of the Human Sciences. Baptists and the Christian left have sometimes, others might say often, gotten things terribly wrong. And this show acknowledges that truth 
and will even strive to show how and when that has been the case. But I have found within the Christian left more of a willingness, to use a loaded religious term, to repent, so to speak. In her book, The Politics of God, Christian Theologies and Social Justice, Catherine Tanner advocates the importance of cultures capable of self-critique. Jesus seems to prefer that, saying that we should get the log out of our own eye before we worry about the speck in someone else's. I hope to adhere to that practice in this show, and sometimes that may mean listening more closely both to the voices on the Christian right as well as voices from other than Christians. Acknowledging missteps and false paths or dead ends is a positive step in a way forward. In creative thinking, failures and missteps can serve as stepping stones to creative solutions and insights. I believe that our learning is never done, so I want to go on a journey with you in which, I hope, both you and I will consider different perspectives and hopefully learn new things. We'll discuss important ideas and books, both old and new. And because I can't neglect my love of the arts and their importance in culture and theology, I'll also be bringing you conversations with artists and painters and dancers and sculptors, choreographers and musicians. I also will be bringing you music not played on Christian radio. And most importantly, we'll be speaking with an array of guests from both the Christian left and beyond so that I can try in my own small way to give a microphone to diverse groups of people that make up our flawed but beautiful world. I hope you on the Christian left will tune in because you like hearing voices that represent your views and discussion of topics and issues that matter to you. I hope some of you on the Christian right will listen because you have found that what you hear here is fair-minded and even at times affirms who you are. But also, because for some of you, you are seeking a way of being a faithful Christian without subscribing to all of the Christian right's self-professed ideologies. Finally, I hope those of you who are other than Christian will listen because you find here Christian voices with whom you can engage respectfully and fruitfully to make our world a better, more peaceful, joyful, and sustainable place. To quote the anthem that I used as my intro and will use as my outro for this episode, for everyone born a place at the table, a shelter, a space, a safe place for growing, a voice to be heard, a part in the song, the right to belong. And God will delight when we are creators of justice and joy, compassion and peace. So there it is, some sense of what I am doing and what you can expect from the show. I am deeply grateful that you listen. I hope you will continue to do so and will spread the word. Let others know. A special thanks goes to my daughter Jessica who helped me get the final draft of this little chat 
into some kind of a better and presentable form. Fathers are rather fond of getting to work on special projects with their children. Hopefully that is true of the children as well, which means also, hopefully, that this will set the precedent for future occasions in which you hear my daughter credited. My next guest is Donna Marie Todd. Donna Marie is a singer of stories and a biblical storyteller, a wonderful art form that combines Judeo-Christian scripture with creative storytelling. Donna Marie is also the editor of the magazine, The Biblical Storyteller. You're really going to enjoy her, so please tune in. Practicing Gospel, Inc. is a nonprofit organization. If you like what you've heard, go to my website at practicing-gospel.blubrry.net to subscribe and hopefully to donate. Your participation will help me continue this effort. Thank you for listening and for your support. Blessings. You've been listening to Practicing Gospel. I'm David Rayburn. Yeah.